Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Vail Dance Festival returns to the stage July 29th through August 9th. Conversations on Dance returns for a fifth year to bring audiences behind the curtain and closer to the festival artists they love. Our live podcast recordings have just been announced and will be running from July 30th through August 9th, totaling 10 events. Guests include Justin Peck, Sarah Mearns, Pam Tanowitz, Caroline Shaw, Lauren Lovett, and many others. I will be on maternity leave this summer. These live events will be hosted by Michael with special guest hosts throughout the festival. Tickets are on sale now and can be purchased at veildance.org slash conversations dash on dash dance, or click the link in the description of this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the content coming from the Vail Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are joined by Miko Nissanen, Artistic Director of Boston Ballet. We first spoke with Miko about his career and his 20-plus years at the helm of Boston Ballet in episode 183 from May 2020. Today, we catch up with Miko to hear about how Boston Ballet weathered the pandemic, how the company reacted to COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement, and their recent choreographer program. Boston Ballet will be on tour for the first time since the pandemic hit this month at Ballet Sun Valley. Ballets on Ballets Festival 2022 will feature Boston Ballet in two distinct programs. Miko takes us through the programming for each of these performances and tells us how he curated these evenings of dance that is sure to delight audiences. Catch Boston Ballet's debut at Ballets on Valley June 24th and 25th, 2022 at 7 p.m. in the Sun Valley Pavilion. Tickets are available at balletsunvalley.org or click the link in the description of this episode. Uh, good morning, Miko. Thank you so much for joining us again. We're so happy to have you back on the pod for a second time. Um, some of our listeners may not have uh, got a chance to tune in to that first podcast. So we thought we'd just do a quick little overview, um, starting with uh, 
what your career as a dancer mainly entailed. Where, where, where were you mostly uh, as a professional dancer? Well, I, I started in my home country in Finland at a very young age, 15. I got a professional contract a couple of years in the company. I decided I want to go back and continue my studies. I took a year of leave of absence and um, got a, uh, a scholarship to Kiro Valley School uh, in Leningrad those days. Then returned back to Finland, had an unfortunate knee injury, got, got drafted into military for a year. And then um, went to New York to get back in shape, danced in with Dutch National a couple of years, three years with Basel Ballet in Switzerland, and then nine seasons with San Francisco Ballet. And, you know, I got early in and early out. I squeezed 19 years of professional dancing between age 15 and uh, 34. And uh, I, I also, also knew that I was very interested. I wanted to be an artistic director. So... Mm -hmm. That sort of started immediately. and uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. How did the opportunity to um, run Boston Ballet, how did that come about for you? Well, you know, after retiring, uh, I ran a Marine Ballet for about a year and a half, a ballet school um, north of San Francisco, doing the same stuff pretty much. They had a small performing leg of the organization, and I said, I'll be there until... I get a professional company because that's what I wanted. And Alberta Ballet had uh, homes in Calgary and Edmonton with the great symphonies in both places and good theater. And I was like, I know how to fix this to the next level and rolled up my sleeves. And, and then three years later or four years later, Boston came calling and, uh, they've had a very, very interesting sort of a search for a new director that didn't work out and they were a little bit in the limbo. And I think they talked to everybody in the industry. Mm -hmm. I was the last person that was interviewed and called me back a couple of weeks later and said, this is not the second interview. Now they're trying to sell me on the job. And <laughs> <laughs> that's how it started. And that, you know, it was, I often say that, the job of the artistic director can be amazing. It's, it's a huge job always. But when the organization's needs are aligned with the skills of, of the AD, mm -hmm. that's when it really works. And the sort of the needs of this organization and, and what I wanted to bring and how it meshed was just pretty natural fit from the beginning. And here we are 20 years later. Yeah. I wonder, um, as we're seeing some of the big institutions across the country changing hands, and of course, as our generation will be stepping up into some of those artistic director positions someday down the line, do you have any um, piece of advice that you would give to maybe our generation that would be stepping into those leadership roles? You know, uh, you're so right. I mean, that is the hot potato, the big question of the day, uh, because Things are going to change. Mm -hmm. Things are going to change really in, in, in a big way. And, you know, um, change is good. It's about the only thing that will happen in a world, regardless. People don't want to change. They say, say they want to change. They don't want to change. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, I would say the biggest thing is that people remember that our art form is not Broadway shows. People are so enamored with the 
the scale and the sets. And, you know, if the heart is empty and the soul is hollow, it doesn't matter how you dress it. Mm-hmm. You know, you got left, right, and middle today. Remember where this art form came from and understand that value system. And then get let people in on a progress of that. It will pique right. their interest. And then diversify your your, your menu, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't want to be exclusive. You want to mm-hmm. be inclusive. So then give them other opportunities to enter the theater and, and join your party. You know, it's um, it's a wonderful journey. It changes life. It feeds souls. It's like a it's your Tesla battery for your your electric vehicle. So <laughs> they could care of your garden. And it's a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Don't mess it up, please. <laughs> what is it exactly about being an artistic director? I mean, you, you already mentioned that by the time you were ending your career, that was something you were really thinking about. But what what about that job makes you tick? Why, why do you like it so much? You know, um, I was always a history buff. I understand where, where it came from. I had mm-hmm. a great uh, appreciation for it. And, you know, like continuation, if you inherit incredible garden and it has big history, you wanna, want to honor that and you want to guide it to the path so it is true to itself and stays relevant with times. You know, th- this art form has to be speaking to today's people. I, I certainly don't want it to be a church. No, mm-hmm. it has to be a living theater for today's people. So... Uh, it changed my life and I know the transformative power of the art form. Mm -hmm. I want today's people to experience that. We need to lower the threshold. Today, there are lots of people who say, well, I don't know what to dress. I don't know how to behave, you know, to go into these uh, ornate opera houses or performing art centers. And, you know, so we have to, make the first step a little lower. We don't have to change a damn thing on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the old um, venues don't have an ideal um, ideal um, sort of entertainment spaces, mm-hmm. show, post-show, because if we understand, in order for us to really hit the nail on the head, this is a social, cultural interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like today, I mean, human soul yawns to have a human contact. And I, I listen to so many people said, oh, I don't do culture. I, I just want to have a social activity. Mm-hmm. You know what? There is no better social activity than social cultural activity. in the right. Bring a date, go meet mm-hmm. people. You have something that you everybody experiences. Talk about it. I mean, it's, it hits 99 points what people want, but they just don't know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you're talking about the, the need for that sort of um, social connection amidst the cultural experience is taking me back to the last time we talked um, when we were not having any sort of social connection <laughs> or really cultural experiences. So I think we talked uh, almost exactly two years ago. So we were really in the thick of it. How have how did things pan out compared to your expectations, or did you just not have any expectations because it was just so, you know, unprecedented? 
I, I think the later. I mean, it was mm-hmm. who entered into this era of potential doom, dark tunnel, and you were trying to create uh, scenarios into this unknown future. And, uh, you know, we went digital, we started filmmaking. Then mm-hmm. what do you do? What do you do with those films? Yeah, you can put them online, you can share them with your audiences and donors, and but then eventually you need a parking lot. But then the world changed yet another way. Black Lives Matter, all the DEI, you know, and, and if you want to be relevant to the world, you have to, to, to live and grow with the world. We always wanted to be the ballet company of the future. But if we were the ballet company of the future... Before the pandemic, and we were today the same bad ballet company, we would be the ballet company of the past. Right. So how do we evolve? So we started uh, all different kinds of things. One is um, it's a website called Uni, U-N-I. You Google it, Uni Boston, Boston Ballet. It is not Boston Ballet marketing thing. It is art that is curated by me. Some Boston Ballet films, some not. And some of them are in, in, in a virtual reality setting. And um, now we're doing the second rendition. It's launching actually on the Juneteenth. Um, community pop-up theater that has a, like a half, um, like a, ha- a dome that's a half of the, like a globe cut in half. Mm-hmm. And you uh-huh. can be in this environment watching dance. And we have different kinds of dance films and we'll take it to the communities around Boston that don't usually have access to dance and uh, uh, it's going to be a whole new thing. So things like this came out of this unknown. First, I paced on on my upper deck like a a tiger in a cage, you know, for months. Like, oh my God, what is this going to be? Is there going to be a company at the end of this, A, financially? And how are the donors going to react? What is it that we can film? You know, how different should it be? Because you can't do what you usually did. Right. But having said all that, at the end of end of the everything, I'm shocked how well we came through it. All the decisions that was done between the, the executive director mm-hmm. and, and the team, you know, we weird probably the best in the nation. Mm -hmm. Pretty unbelievable how we survived, how we didn't spend the endowment down, how we kept the dancers employed probably the most out of all the companies. You know, of course, it's a different, it's not comparable to be really fair. New York City, public transportation, they had to react differently than we, but we got lucky in some ways. We did a ton of smart decisions and yes, luck did play some part of it, but we kept our dancers active and we had a whole digital um, season and now just finished uh, at home the first in-person season. Mm-hmm. Wow. To stay. Yeah. <laughs> Something I thought was pretty remarkable is that you were one of the only companies that did not cancel any Nutcracker performances. How was that even possible? I mean, it was just Omicron was ripping through the nation, but you guys made it through to the end. What kind well, of substitutions and alterations did you have to make to make that happen? Well, first of all, you know, like we didn't have any kids under, um, I think it was 12, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And then um, 
early on, you know, we decided we don't want to do a full season because uh, I felt it was too big of a risk. I knew there was going to be a, another wave coming in. Uh, I, we had to make that decision in the previous March, April. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at all the European data all the time. And I said, no, it's like this is not going to be just D-O-N-E last summer. And I said, let's just rather be safe now and, and push everything to the fall. And uh, and then with Nutcracker, I was concerned after such a long break of dancers' uh, condition and injuries. And mm-hmm. I said, let's take the fall and train and train and train because they didn't perform for a year. Yeah. Right. Plus, and they train first in their homes and then in the studios, in the pods, and eventually with a full company. And I said, I don't want to injure them. I want to protect them. And I said, Nutcracker is going to be great. It's a a material that they know, so they're familiar. Mm -hmm. But let's not rest. Let's not push. Let's not break the the camel's back here. Mm -hmm. One week less than usually. And, um, you know, we got lucky in the front end that we didn't have a fall season. And then we got also lucky that I've got the last week of the Nutcracker of the schedule. So. That was our secret potion. That's awesome. Was there anything that you guys um, danced this season that in particular kind of came out of this uncertain time in the pandemic that was maybe created then that was influenced by that time? I mean, everything, I guess, was influenced by that time, right? You know, we we had this uh, long-term project of uh, giving voice, more voice to the female choreographers, Mm -hmm. both choreographer, it was... uh, a long t- long-term thing in the school, I think the last four years, to give a female choreographers opportunity to then company members. And this uh, was already postponed. It was supposed to have its main stage show, which did take place this March. Mm-hmm. You know, how that was supposed to be is totally different than it ended up being because we right. had international participants and this and that. So the, the COVID crisis really influenced the shape of it mm-hmm. at the same time uh it turned out great and it's done and now we move to the next stage on it and uh, definitely i would say early on lots of the film work was influenced by it but there was so much of the angst and uh, claustrophobia out there very soon everybody realized we need to give people something else oxygen mm-hmm. hope not just misery that everybody was experiencing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you curated that program? How, to, how did you select um, the women that were going to be um, commissioned for the choreographer program? Well, first of all, I, I thought that anybody over 80 is not the fresh talent into the field. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really who's dead. You weren't going to put Graham on the program <laughs> as wonderful as she is. But. Well, you know, there, there, are, there are some giants there, but I didn't think that was going to be the most helpful thing for the art form. Right. right. And it's about bringing new names into the, the, the game. Um, but I also wanted to crack about it a little differently. You know, the, the other names in the ballet world that are up and coming and everybody's using them and everybody has different opinions of the, the, the different levels and what they represent. And I felt like I want to bring new names into the people, Mm -hmm. new opportunities. And, you know, uh, I take the the risk and the chance, but I also wanted to diversify dance styles. Mm -hmm. 
I had one neoclassical choreographer, Tyler mm-hmm. Peck. Mm-hmm. Then I had uh, Chantal Martin and Leah Syria, who, sorry, uh, Claudia Schreier and Leah Syria, who sort of neoclassical contemporary. I had a Melissa Duguid, classic uh, modern dance of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Chantal Martin, like a, a mashup uh, choreographer with zero experience of dance, no choreography, great visual artist. And I said, all right, let's see. And um, we, we had a blast. <laughs> it looked you great. Know? It was so fun to follow on social media. We were, Michael and I were sending stuff back and forth to each other. Like, this looks so cool. But I also wonder, um, it's not just the choreographers that are female, right? You also had uh, music from female um, composers. Tell us a little bit about all of the other components that also highlighted female voices. Well, you know, the lots of the cost, costume designs were think except one piece all female uh, designers mm-hmm. and but you know like again if i go back to my original plan was to have um, female conductor to have mm-hmm. use female composers have female designers from around the world this uh-huh. time it was from around the world from the boston ballet's perspective it was our our costume shop that has a great up-and-coming designers and, right. and a combination of talent. So the scale changed, but the, the concept was really to look at it deeper and wider. And uh, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, it shaped itself a little differently. But I have to say, um, what a purpose of the program and what participation from the audience is. I mean... If you ever walked into the theater and people don't know what they're going to see, but they anticipate that this magic is going to take place. Mm-hmm. It was this program. Audience embraced. And they embraced coming on a journey. It was not like, I want to have the Reacher's Digest of the ballet or I want to have a hit. Right. And, you know, it's so great to see that. And it was a wonderful to experience. Mm-hmm. That's so great that it came off so well. Uh, I want to go back and talk a little bit about how um, Black Lives Matter has affected um, the work you do at Boston Ballet. And it it actually made me think back to when DTH disbanded, you were the only director of a major company that hired one of the main ballerinas from the company. I'm thinking, was that a moment when you already started to realize that ballet had, you know, a big racial inequality issue? I mean, that's like a, a, a large company and those dancers couldn't get jobs. You were the only one to, to make a hire there. Well, uh, it goes a little bit further back. I come from Finland and, you know, I guess I come with a certain naivete. You know, I was not steeped into this country's uh, racial history to the extent that I understand it today. Even mm-hmm. three years ago, my understanding of that was still uh, different than today. There's been a lot of learning. But good 25 years ago uh, with, with Virginia Johnson, and we've been talking about this topic and, uh, and uh, in a school level and how do we uh, get a better channels that they, people come into the company from the schools and what are the issues. So um, I've been aware of that a long time. Uh, however, I've always felt that the ballet company needs to be the mirror of the society. What you see in your society, you should see on stage. So diversity mm-hmm. has been a huge thing. And I have uh, always been 
open is is wrong word. Um, just totally welcoming and trying to work on that because I enjoy. I enjoy going to different kinds of restaurants. I do enjoy different kinds of people, and for for there for it for me it's been always very important that we have very mixed company in that sense. But um, then with with all the things that took place in this country. You know, we committed as an organization into huge DEI learning thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the organization to the depth that we're going and doing. It's ongoing. It's an, mm-hmm. it's a never ending work. And I understand how different the situation is with the African-American community from the other communities. We have 30% of the company, Asian and American Asian. And right now I think we are about, 15 percent uh black mm-hmm. and then you know of course you have your pipe arc and um, so the goal is to ongoing work uh, at the same time uh, we try to stimulate the issues in, in the early on and then funnel them through the schools to the company um, we hire talent but we want to give opportunity just like female choreographers mm-hmm. give opportunity in the different stages it's happening, and I th- I'm really proud where we are now, and I hope that it will continue, uh, and um, you know it will be going up and down, but the, the the commitment and the education will not stop. Yeah, let's shift gears and talk about uh, Ballet Sun Valley. Your first tour, I understand, right? Coming back from COVID, uh, tell us a little bit about what programs we'll see. We've already talked about some of the things that will be on the program, but tell give us a little rundown. Well, um, you know, it's a, it's a two, two programs of uh, uh, mixed works, mixed works of uh, quality and fun. <laughs> um, we start with the, uh, both programs actually start with the work that works that were created for the choreographer program. Mm-hmm. The first one starts with Tyler Peck's uh, point of departure and um, neoclassical really controlled beautiful piece to great music and then followed by uh, George Balanchine's Chacon Pas de Deux, uh, which is tells you about neoclassical ballet because it's balletic it's beautiful but it's also technical and uses musicality in a sort of very playful way mm-hmm. from there we go into classical ballet we do the white swan potato and black swan potato and then we top off the first program with the william forsyth masterpiece the blake works one to the music of james blake mm-hmm. so you know like anytime you do a program it's a little bit like this is the meal that we serve you start with this and they we take you into the journey and when, when you leave the restaurant hopefully you're fulfilled and <laughs> For sure. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the company's special relationship with William Forsyth and how that might have shifted a little bit during the pandemic? Well, um, I've always loved his work and was very lucky to get to work with him a tiny little bit in my dance career. And um, it all started from me wanting to share the revelation that I had with him, with my dancers. And then eventually... You know, he he just loved the dancers, loved how they were in their openness, their mentality, their technical skills, their uh, astute 
understanding the music and the complexities in it. And then we embarked on this uh, five-year partnership around the year three. Is it like partnership that's put in a garbage? This is my home base for the rest of my life. <laughs> wow. So, you know, wow. we locked out there. And what can I say? I love Bill. Uh, <laughs> his work blows me away. He's Blake Works 3 that we just did a world premiere about him. So it seems like a month ago, maybe five weeks ago. Um, I can't believe he still takes classical ballet to the next level and finds mm-hmm. a new angle on it. It was, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. So, you know, uh, I'm not jealous of my dancers, but wow. <laughs> maybe like a little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I can't help but think when you're talking about this program that just sounds so fun and so well-rounded, like you're talking about, you know, kind of having like a full meal. And you've told us before that it's um, important to kind of lower that bar of entry for people coming to the ballet. So I, to me, this seems like the perfect program for something like this. And also Ballet Sun Valley is such a great venue for something like that. So um, tell us a little bit about that thought process when you're programming and then also what's in the uh, second program too, how that also kind of goes into it. Yeah. It's um, maybe I start from the place where people say, I don't, I don't know anything about ballet. I don't understand it. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know anything. <laughs> you don't have to understand anything. <laughs> when you yeah. put something to your mouth, it's how you react to it. Mm-hmm. Does it taste good? Is it surprising taste? Mm. You know, like it's just, it's about experiencing it. So uh, since the ultimate, this is not about entertaining people. This is about communicating with the audience and the participants and, and, you know, it's whether it soothes your soul, does it tickle your soul, does it, what does it evoke in you? So it's about that kind of relationship. And, um, um, you know, the both programs, like I said, they, ha- they have their own journey. The second one starts with uh, Leah Sirio's uh, uh, chapter in Fragments, you know, and it's, it's an absolute story ballet. That has no story. That you make the story. Right. There's a million stories in there. So it should start that dialogue well. Then we go back into the Chacon, the same kind of appetizer, uh, mm-hmm. palate cleanser, a beautiful thing in between mm-hmm. with a different cast. And then we have this potida, which is uh, called Tsukio by Helen Pickett. It's like mesmerizing piece that's just like, imagine... 20 seconds stretched into 10 minutes Mm -hmm. and you get sucked into this sort of initial concept was this uh, Japanese fairy tale, but it's about relationship. A stranger comes into the picture and there's a connection. And then the connection goes into different levels of depth. And then there is the, the parting that is unavoidable and it takes you in that story sort of slow motion, but it it rips your heart apart. And it's, um, I I don't know if, you know, one of my board members, um, 
you know, like uh, commented how steamy the parada is that, you know, after you see this piece, you need to have a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a non-smoker, so I can only imagine what it means. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the last bit is a whole lot of fun. It's uh, Stephen Galloway's um, a work to the musical Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. Oh, fun. You don't just have the sort of the hit parade. He he was very clever, and I I was blown away with his selections. He wanted this specific live performance from 1969, and where it's not just a song. There's a lots of improvisation. There's a little mm-hmm. extended sections between and uh, nice collages of Stones music. And I mean, I'm a big fan. Have been a big fan and try to see them every single time I can live. <laughs> And um, this was a long time coming, this piece, and we finally did it because it was postponed because of pandemic. And talk about the work that takes that threshold coming into the theater. Ballet lovers, first-timers, I mean, universally connected to the work. Mm-hmm. To the extent that was three times more than I ever expected. So there must be some magic potion in there. So, um, you know, I thought we finished the first evening with the James Blake. Yes, it's not Beach Boys. Uh, it's a different generation of popular music, but uh, hauntingly stunning and brilliantly mentally uh, fantastic. And then, you know, you get that emotional connection that the Stones bring through rock and roll. And again, the band success is again in a human connection. So it's all about that dialogue with you, our audience members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what it means for you guys to be back on tour. I mean, the last time we spoke to you, you couldn't tour outside of your living room. <laughs> and now, you know, you're taking the company on this great um, journey to, to, share with audiences like Boston's real identity and that, with, with people that will be seeing the company for the first time, a lot of them. What, what does that mean to you, to, um, you know, especially in retrospect? Well, it's, I, I think touring is essential part of uh, uh, if you're a major company in the world or you're a different size of company, they're touring companies who really must live on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for Boston Ballet, it, it serves several different purposes. You know, it's, we're global citizens. Dancers have been a global citizen, even in in the in the 1850s. You know, people traveled from Italy to Spain to Stockholm to London and America, and performed, and they were understood because the universal language of dance. Mm-hmm. And then with the internet now, the world is a global into the different mm-hmm. extent. So, it, there's an external validation is one part. It's for the company's image. You know, you, you win in Paris, you win in London. You know, you're hopefully a hometown hero and uh, <laughs> with the, your sports teams and helps with the funding and excitement and those experiences for the your board members abroad are like the best imaginable. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, um, it's also about the showing the dancers the world and then uh, sharing with other audiences, you know, 
sharing what you have and having that dialogue. It's just like meeting a new friend. Yeah. And uh, so I always personally wanted to dance in a company that toured. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I didn't want to be a landlocked salmon. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) so, uh, you know, it's in my DNA and I really want it to be a big part of Boston Ballet's DNA. And we're really excited to come there. Yeah. Well, we're so excited for audiences for uh, Ballet Sun Valley. They're going to have so much fun seeing, seeing Boston Ballet. And that is June 24th and 25th for people who are in the area. And for our listeners who are in the Boston area, tell us what we can expect from your next season. And then for our listeners who aren't, what ways are um, you guys connecting virtually still with audiences? So for, for the Boston Ballet audiences here in Boston, uh, what they can expect next year uh, with Boston Ballet is uh, it's another season of uh, moving to the next level out of the pandemic. Uh, the big focus for me is, you know, like our run just finished with Small Lake. Mm-hmm. And the last, it was like pack, pack, pack. And it was so nice to see the theater packed. Yeah. The last show was sold out. So yes, that's the, we finished that chapter now let's turn the page mm-hmm. next year is to re-engage with new audiences bring the old audiences back that, that was sort of the big big part of it we're going visually very different direction uh, including all today's dei and how we talk about the company all the photography should talk about today's world not yesterday's ballet company mm-hmm. and um so the first program is going to be uh, George Balanchine's Allegro Brilliant, Helen Pickett's Tukio, uh, George Balanchine's iconic Apollo, and Stephen Galloway's uh, Evil Eye, Devil's Eye. I, I messed that up all the time. <laughs> so that's the first program. Then we jump into a, a major program with William Forsythe. He's going to do a world premiere to the music of John Cage, and he's massive artifact suite mm-hmm. followed by nutcracker we'll bring rudolf nureyev's uh, full evening don't cue back we're doing the paris opera version of that uh then we have a really really um cool evening with justin peck uh everywhere we go i think it's the title of the, that's uh, big piece and you know we've done one of one of uh, justin's work increases and i admire so much what he does and i can't believe we have gotten more done but here is a big one so that will start the evening and then we have nanny Lini uh from um holland doing a work she did absolutely brilliant digital film work for us during the pandemic because we postponed her premiere mm-hmm. so now it's going to be a uh, Debussy's La Mer is going to be the base. Oh, that's such beautiful music. And mm-hmm. it sort of examines the ocean. Mm-hmm. But ocean, Debussy's ocean was very romantic ocean. Today's ocean is a little different. So mm-hmm. there's a contemporary composer who's going to do every second movement in between. And we look at the polluted ocean mm-hmm. and the romantic ocean at the same time we're adding the, the Debussy sirens a choral work in there this is going to be a big 50 minute work wow and with a full led screen utopian designers of 
all organic uh, costumes and uh, and things that look like they're from the Museum of Modern Art of 2040, very futuristic. And so major creative process. We're trying to hook up with the companies who uh, take uh, who are interested and involved of uh, cleaning the oceans from the plastic, because mm-hmm. there is a a great artistic team, great artistic product with the today's message, which purpose, a product purpose participation, and mm-hmm. then I want to have a movement of people who feel so strongly about this that they can't wait to see the piece because it, it, it does world good in so many fronts. So this is a little bit of a, a, a piece that I, it's the way I want to think about the future. Right. It's not just the product that you have. What is the purpose of your product? And then that will go cross borders in the participations of your audiences. You know, like it will bring different group of people on top of what already comes. So um, I'm very excited about that. And then um, we try to wrap up the season with a huge number of people again, and it will be um, the classic Sleeping Beauty. Yay. We have the wow, what a great season to look forward to. Wow. Very classic Boston Ballet programming. You really get the full range of what the dancers are capable there. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, if you're in the Boston area, you've got a lot of ballet viewing coming up 2022 to 23. And uh, those that are in the area, we really hope they come June 24th and 25th to see Boston Ballet in those beautiful mixed uh, rep programs. So thank you so much, Miko, for joining us. Uh, Always a pleasure. I was just going to say the same. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks, Miko. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.